Hi, I'm Pastor Michael. We are doing a sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy. And in the early chapters, Moses goes back. He's looking back at the wilderness wanderings of Israel. And after 38 years of basically walking in circles, the people at last leave the wilderness and they're on their way to the promised land. And along the way, they pass by these three pagan nations, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And that's the story we're going to look at today. That's the story in our text. And as you read the story, superficially, it reads basically like a travelogue. We're told something about the origins of these countries, um, the extent of their territorial lands, a little bit about their ethnographic history. Let me pause for the plane. That's my first one. <laughs> it came early in the sermon, so I better rush through. Um, and it reads like a travelogue, and at first reading, it's not a very interesting read, to be honest with you. But I want to show you today that Edom, Moab, and Ammon are not just background setting. They're not just backdrop characters to the main drama of Israel, but in these three nations, we see God's purposes for the nations. We see the missionary heart of God that he desires all peoples to be saved, and that's what the story is about. That's what we're going to look at. And so with that in mind, um, I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 2, the first 23 verses. It's a long, it's a lengthy passage, so please bear with me, but um, it's very significant. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. This is Moses speaking. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir, which is um, in the southern part of uh, Edom. Then the Lord said to me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers the people of Esau. Let me pause there for a moment. Um, Esau is also called Edom in the Bible because he was so red. Edom means red. So his descendants are the Edomites. But in our passage, he's referred to as uh, Esau. The, uh, the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land, No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them for money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Elath to uh, Izion-Geber. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. So this is the second nation. 
And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. Moab is one of the sons of Lot. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as the Raphaim, but the Moabites called them Emim. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Verse 13, Now rise up and go over the, bo- the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years, until the entire generation, that's, remember, the first generation that came out of Egypt, until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So as soon as all the men of war had perished, it's a bit of an ironic title for them, and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, that's the third nation, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot, Ammon is um, a second son of Lot, for a possession. It is also counted as a land of Raphaim. Raphaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim. That's a very fun name to say. Zamzumim, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord possessed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they possessed they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftarim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and settled in their place. This is the word of God. All right. So, I have three points to make. Here's the outline. Number one, we're going to look at Israel among the nations. Number two, we're going to look at the strife of the nations. And then finally, number three, we're going to look at the gospel hope for the nations. So let's begin. Number one, Israel among the nations. So from this passage, we learn a couple of things. First, we learn that Israel is not to be an empire. Israel is told explicitly not to attack Moab, Edom, and Ammon not to seize even a footprint of their territory. Not because these nations are so much stronger than Israel, but in spite of their weakness. In verse 4, it tells us that the people of Edom were afraid of Israel. And they were afraid of Israel because Israel was stronger. They were in a superior position. In fact, if you read the parallel passage in Numbers chapters 20 to 22, which is the same story, it's just a longer, more detailed version of it, we're told not only was Edom afraid, but the next nation, Moab, was so petrified that they were overcome by their fear. That's what the text tells us. And therefore, don't you see, these nations are ripe for conquest. But Israel is not to be an empire. 
They are not to conquer foreign lands. They are not to exercise dominion, political and military over the nations of the world. They are to stay in Canaan and they are to remain confined to the boundaries that God had given them. So that's the first thing, no empire. Secondly, we learn that these foreign nations are in fact the objects of God's care and provision. Even though they do not acknowledge him or worship him, you have to understand that these are pagan nations. And uh, they were polytheists so that they worshipped many gods. We um, know from, uh, from the Bible that the Moabites worshipped Chemosh, the Ammonites worshipped Molech, they practiced human sacrifice, including child sacrifice, and all kinds of abominable religious practices. And yet, the God of Israel cares for them and has provided them a homeland. Look at the language of verse 5. God says, I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. So that the Edomites are not just happen to be there in the land, but they are there by God's providential plan and design. And then you'll notice in the text, in two separate places, with all of those place names and, and, and odd names, we're given a kind of mini-history behind how each of these nations came to their respective territories and how God was moving behind the scenes he was arranging historical events for their benefit. So that's the second thing we learn. God cares for these nations. And then number three, therefore, Israel is to treat these nations with dignity and respect. Verse 6 tells us that Israel is to purchase food and water as they pass through these lands. They are not to seize supplies. They are not to conduct raids or harass the inhabitants but they are to respect the territorial integrity and property rights of these foreign peoples, not because they're allies or because they have treaties with these nations, not for any strategic reason, but simply because God loves them and he cares for them. I want you to understand how remarkable this is. In a world, in a ruthless world, were the strong and the weak, Israel was to respect the right of these pagan nations to exist as a people. Now, what does this all mean? What is this text telling us? I want you to know that it's not enough simply to see this as a kind of, I don't know, proto-UN Charter on Human Rights where nations and people groups are not to oppose other nations. That is true, but I want you to know that doesn't go nearly deep enough in terms of what this text is telling us. And it is not enough simply to say, well, isn't it the case, you astute Bible scholars, that these three nations are related to Abraham by blood, and therefore, because of their proximity, because of their you know, relationship to the people of God, they're afforded this sort of special protection. That doesn't go nearly broad enough. That doesn't even begin to capture the scope, 
the full scope of what the Bible is saying. Because you have to go back to the Abrahamic covenant. And in the Abrahamic covenant, God comes to Abraham and he promises Abraham three things. He promises Abraham a land, the land of Canaan. He promises him, I'm debating if I should pause for the helicopter. (laughs) I'll go on. Um, He promises him land. He promises him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then the third thing is he says, in you, all the families, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And you know that word nations in the Bible? In the Hebrew, it's the word goyim. Goyim is where we get the word Gentiles. And therefore, do you not understand that God did not just set his love on a particular ethnic group, the Jewish people, but God set his love. It was God's intention that the nations, that a people from every goyim would come to know him and have a relationship with him. And we see this call to the nations to worship the God of Israel all throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Psalms. Let me just read you one uh, example, Psalm 67, which is one of the great missionary psalms. Another one is Psalm 96, which we read in the call to worship. Listen to verses 3 and 4. Let the peoples praise you. Notice the word people is, the, is in the plural, right? Meaning the peoples of the world. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations, the goyim, be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Now, let's do a little bit of analysis. Why is it so important that the God of Israel is acknowledged by the nations? And the answer is, if the God of Israel is the real God, if he's not just some regional deity worshipped by a tribal people, then he is not going to be limited to a single ethnic group, to a single culture or a single time period, but he will transcend all cultures, all ethnic expressions across all time periods. I'm reading a book right now by Vince Bantu called A Multitude of All People. And he makes the case, I think very persuasively, that Christianity didn't become a global religion with the advent of the modern missionary movement in the 19th century that came out of Europe. But Christianity was always a global religion from the very beginning. So that immediately from the start, Christianity crossed over into the Greco-Roman world from its Jewish roots. It reached Armenia in the third century, Ethiopia in the fourth century, Persia in the fourth century. Did you know that the church in Persia was an incredibly vibrant, active um, church that was sending out missionaries all throughout Asia. They sent missionaries to Afghanistan, to India. Uh, Persian missionaries reached China in the 7th century under the Tang dynasty for 200 years. There was a very active and vibrant Christian church. 
We actually have uh, standing monasteries and church buildings from that era. We have a mountain of manuscript data. We have stone tablets from that period. And so Bantu, he argues that there has always been more Christians outside of Europe than inside, now more than ever. Two-thirds of Christians now live in the global south, uh, not in Europe and America. You know why? Because Christianity is not the expression of one culture, but it transcends all human cultures because it is from God. It's from God. When I was in college, I um, went on a missions trip to Uganda and um, on Sundays, I would visit uh, local churches. And I remember this one particular Sunday, I was visiting this congregation. And um, you have to understand that African worship services are very different than Western American-style worship. Uh, first of all, they last like four hours. And the worship music is just so full of energy and boisterous. And I remember this Sunday... I was standing as the congregation was singing and they were playing their native instruments. They didn't use any Western style instruments like piano or anything. And the whole congregation was singing in their native language, which is Lugandan. And it was so beautiful. And I started to weep. And I remember being struck at that moment with this thought that the God of the Bible is not just the God of America. He is the God of the whole world. Habakkuk 2.14 says, The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. And then when you go to the end of the Bible, what do you see? Revelation chapters 5 and 7, you see this multi-ethnic worship service a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And that word nation in the Greek, you know, the word nation in Hebrew is goyim. The word, uh, the Greek word for nation is ethnos. And ethnos is where we get the word ethnicity. And so notice that heaven does not erase our ethnic differences, but they are preserved and celebrated. And therefore, ethnicity is not a result of the fall. But it was always God's intention for the human race that we would have all of these different ethnic expressions for the glory of God and for our enjoyment so that each of us has, each of us has a unique ethnic heritage. And we have a national history of our peoples that we can look back to with pride and see the hand of God uh, active. Listen to the way Paul, the Apostle Paul puts it in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. He's preaching to the, at the Areopagus. This is what he says. From one man, he's talking about Adam, God created every nation ethnos of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Listen to this. His purpose 
was for the nations to seek after him in the hope that they might reach toward him and find him. And so that's the story of the Bible. The whole trajectory of the Bible is leading to this multi-ethnic, multi-ethnos worship service and we see it in incipient form, sort of in seed form here in Deuteronomy chapter 2. So that's my first point, God's purposes for the nations. The second point is the strife of the nations. So there's a problem. And you can't see the problem immediately in our text in Deuteronomy, but you do see it in the parallel story in in Numbers chapters 20 to 22. As I said, Numbers 20 to 22 is a kind of uh, lengthier, more detailed version And Numbers tells a very different story. It doesn't contradict Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is focused on Israel's attitude to the nations. But Numbers tells us what actually happened in history. And what actually happened is that Israel requested safe passage through Edom as directed by God. They promised to stay on the main road. They promised that they would purchase water and food along the way and not do any raids. But Edom refused. And in, and in numbers, um, the Edomites gather this enormous army and they block Israel from entering their land so that Israel has to go the long way around and circumvent the country of Edom. And then in numbers, they reach the nation of, of Moab And the same thing happens. But this time, the Moabites are so alarmed, so hostile to the Hebrew people, that they bring in this prophet for hire named Balaam to curse the people of Israel. Um, You may know this uh, famous story of Balaam's ass, right? Balaam's donkey. Um, So that basically nothing goes as planned. And then... As you continue to read the story, you have the books of Judges. You have the book of Judges. The first sort of oppressive foreign king is Moab, uh, Eglon, king of, of the Moabites. You keep reading on in Samuel and Kings. And you have this long, ugly history of hostility and warfare, of mutual hatred and recriminations. And then when the Jewish people return home from exile, it is the Ammonites and the Moabites who are the most opposed to the Jewish people. And they attack uh, the Jewish people to prevent them from from rebuilding the city walls. You could read about this in the book of Nehemiah. And therefore, hear me, in the Torah and in the Old Testament, What you see is not peaceful coexistence, but you see separation and exclusion. Deuteronomy 23 verses 3 and 4, we'll get there eventually, specifically excludes the Ammonites and the Moabites from entering into the temple. And as you read further on in the Torah, Uh, we're told that foreigners could not own land in Israel. And in a world in which land ownership was everything, that meant 
that foreigners could never experience full citizenship in Israel, even though there were all kinds of Torah laws, and we're going to look at this, that were designed to protect foreigners, to protect these um, refugees coming in. There were all kinds of laws to, to extend them mercy, like the gleaning laws that allowed the uh, foreigners to gather food for themselves. Nevertheless, foreigners would remain perpetual outsiders in the land of Israel. And so what you see in the Bible is this tension so that on the one hand, there is this vision of multi-ethnic worship, the nations coming to worship in Israel, Psalm 67, for example. And on the other hand, you have this long, terrible history of conflict and war, and you have these laws mandating separation and exclusion. And this is all perfectly captured, I think, in the story of Jacob and Esau. If you read the story of Jacob and Esau, they are the progenitors. They are the founding fathers of two nations. Out of Jacob comes Israel. In fact, that's his name. His name becomes Israel. And then out of Esau comes the Edomites. And when you read the Genesis account, you see that these twin brothers, even in the womb, they're wrestling, they're fighting each other. And that marks their life, rivalry and competition, until one day, Jacob has to flee from Esau's wrath because he stole the birthright and the blessing. And he is in exile for, for decades. And then finally, in Genesis 33, when Jacob returns home, Esau comes out to meet him. And it's a very tense moment. They embrace each other. They exchange gifts. And there's a kind of provisional reconciliation. And then in the story, Esau offers to Jacob to come and live with him. But do you remember what happens in the story? Jacob politely refuses, uh, declines, and then they part company. And then they each settle down in separate lands. And that is ultimately how they keep the peace, by keeping distant from one another. I want you to know that in miniature is the story of humanity. Peace comes from separation. And intermingling is what produces conflict. We see that in the ancient world and we see it in the modern world. Several years ago, I read um, an article in The Atlantic and it was looking at the work of a sociologist at Stanford named Daniel McFarlane. Daniel McFarlane is an expert who studies how cliques, uh, friendship groups form in high school. And from his research, he wrote a paper that got a lot of attention. It created this big stir. And his finding, his major finding is, listen to this, the more racially diverse a school is, the more segmented and stratified the cliques become along racial lines. So that at lunchtime, we're all familiar with this, what do you see? You see the Asian group sitting over there, you see the Latino group sitting over there, you see the white kids and the black kids, and they're all sitting 
with each other, but separately from one another. So that, Daniel McFarlane says, paradoxically, greater diversity leads to more racial segregation, more racial tension, and more misunderstanding. And his conclusion in this paper is that there is in human beings this this deep, innate preference for people who look like us. In psychology, there's a kind of benign-sounding term for this. It's called in-group preference. And this in-group preference we observe universally in all cultures, in all peoples, in all age groups. We observe it in children. We also observe it even in infants. Here's another data point. In 2016, a study was published by Harvard Business Review. And the study was written by these two professors, one at Harvard, the other at Tel Aviv. And they're studying the effectiveness of corporate diversity training. And so they collected data from over 800 companies, both big and small. Uh, And this is data that goes back over 30 years. And what they found is, is very counterintuitive, but it has been supported and replicated in other studies. This is what they found. They found that corporate diversity training, racial sensitivity training, listen to this, does not improve race relations. It harms them. It produces resentment. It increases grievances between ethnic groups inside the company. You know, it would be one thing if the results were neutral, right? Like so much of corporate training, people just sort of tune out. They don't really listen. We know how that goes. But the effect is actually negative. It makes race relations worse. So what is going on? The more a school is ethnically mixed, the more racially segregated the cliques become. The more a company mandates diversity training, the more anger and resentment it produces. Do you know why? Because this is the human condition. Because our ethnic differences does not naturally produce brotherhood and harmony. It naturally produces conflict and rivalry. It is Jacob and Esau over and over again, writ large across the human story. One of my formative uh, childhood memories is the LA riots. The LA riots happened in 1992. I was um, a freshman in high school at the time in LA. I grew up in Glendale. And for those of you who are under 40 years old, Let me tell you what happened. I remember it vividly. I came home from school and I was watching TV and the Rodney King verdict came down and the city just exploded in rage and rioting. The rioting lasted for five terrible days and over 10,000 businesses were looted or burned to the ground. And about half of those businesses were Korean-owned businesses. 
in a city in which Koreans made up less than 2% of store owners so that Koreans were absolutely targeted in these riots. And what happened, and I didn't really understand this until years later, is that there was a precipitating event a year before with the death of Latasha Harlins. Latasha Harlins was a uh, 15-year-old black girl, about a little older than I was at the time. And on the way home, she stopped by this Korean-owned convenience store to buy a bottle of orange juice. And the store owner, Sun Jadu, thought that Latasha Harlins was shoplifting. You have to understand that this store had been heavily victimized by shoplifting for the past several years. And so Sun Jadu had reached a boiling point. She grabbed Latasha Harlins. They were wrestling on the ground. She punched this girl. And then as the girl was running away, Sun Jadu went back around the counter, got her gun, and killed this child. At trial, Sun Jadu was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter, which carries a maximum sentence of 16 years. But the judge reduced her sentence to five years probation, meaning no prison, and she was fined $500. You have to understand that the LA riots happened at this moment of maximum tension between the Korean community and the black community in LA. And I, and as a teenager, I remember this vividly. I remember going to church that week of the riots. And uh, I was part of a Korean church. And there were members of my church who were buying guns and going down to Koreatown to defend these businesses. I remember this feeling, this atmosphere in my church of fear and anger. There was a lot of ugly talk. And the LA riots happened now almost 30 years ago. But let me tell you, the scars of that event have still not healed for these two communities. From time immemorial, this is the story of humanity. We're seeing it again again today between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Rockets are flying over Gaza and war is raging again. In the past several months, violent race riots have broken out in Northern Ireland, that age-old blood feud between the Irish and the British. Did you know that right now there's a war being raged between the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis along with their allies, the Turks, which is a conflict that goes back over a thousand years. I can go on and on. I can talk about the Chinese and the Uyghurs. I can talk about the Igbo and the Hausa in Nigeria. Did you know that there have been more ethnic conflicts in the 20th, 20th and 21st century than in any previous century before? Everywhere you look, The world is filled with blood and hatred and violence. What is the answer? What is the answer? This leads me to my third point, the hope of the gospel for the nations. 
One of the most helpful books I've ever read on the theology of missions is by Christopher Wright. Christopher Wright is a really renowned Old Testament scholar. He's also the director of a, of a mission school in Northern Ireland. He wrote, a, he wrote a wonderful book called The Mission of God. I read it several years ago. It blew me away. And in preparation for this sermon, I reread portions of it. And actually, I'm largely borrowing the basic outline of his book from my sermon. And he argues that in the Torah, what you see is this tension between Israel's mandate to be a light to the nations, to be, as uh, Exodus 19 verse 6 says, uh, a royal priesthood, which is really astonishing language, because the whole nation was to be priests. They were to represent God and minister to the nations. And yet, at the same time, you see this very strict language of separation and exclusion for the Gentiles. Uh, for example, we saw this already, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. No Ammonite, no Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, the text says, to the tenth generation, which means in perpetuity. And so how do you resolve this tension? And Christopher Wright says that the tension begins to be resolved in the prophets. Because in the prophets, they're talking about how the Gentiles are going to join and belong to Israel. Not just observe and witness from afar, but join and unite with the people of God. And there are so many passages that I wish we had time that I could show you. But let me just read you one from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2, two to 4. It's a little bit of a long passage, but I want to read it to you. It is one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. Listen to this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, he's talking about Zion, he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations, all the goyim shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then listen to this. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is one of the most beautiful visions in the Bible. The Gentiles will come in and they will join and belong to Israel and they will know the Lord. And notice that this joining and belonging is the answer to the ethnic strife and hatred that we see. 
Look at the language. They will beat their swords into plows that will be used for farming, for the well-being and flourishing of people. They will turn their war spears into fishing hooks. This amazing imagery of peace. How does, how will this happen? Christopher Wright says that in the Old Testament, it is left a mystery. We don't know. But when you get to the New Testament, you have the answer. I want to read to you uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, another lengthy passage. But listen to this. Listen to every word of this because this is the answer. This is the answer. We're going to close with this passage. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were for a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I want to close by walking you through the logic of Paul's argument. In this passage, Paul talks about this dividing wall of hostility between the races. This is not just a colorful metaphor. In the ancient world, there were literal physical walls in ancient cities that would separate the ethnic groups to keep them from killing each other. And Paul has the audacity to say that Christ has torn down this wall. Paul says, by his flesh, he's talking about his death on the cross. Now, here's the question. How does the cross tear down this dividing wall? Here's the answer. You see, what fundamentally drives hatred and separation between ethnic groups is that everyone needs an identity. Everyone needs a reason to know that they are worthwhile, that they have value and dignity. And for a a great number of people, they build their identity on their ethnicity, on their heritage and their culture. And so what happens in ethnic conflicts is that each side nurses these historical grievances. And then you use these grievances to hate, to look down on people on the other side. It's actually quite a delicious feeling. It feels really good to despise, to disdain other people. And that's how you build an identity. You say, I'm not like those evil people over there. And you judge them and you reject them. That's how you build that identity. That is how everyone builds an identity. 
Some people use ethnicity, some people use politics, or you use education or personality types, or whatever it is. Everyone draws a line to separate the in-group and the out-group, the good people over here and the bad people over there. But the gospel, the gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. And what that does is it destroys your self-righteousness because you are so wicked and so lost that Christ had to die in your place because the cross is what you deserve for your sins. But at the same time, you are so loved and so forgiven that Jesus gladly laid down his life to rescue you because you are his treasure. And that's the answer. When the truth of that goes deep into your heart, it replaces, listen to me, all other identities. And you are given a new, you are given a new identity in Christ. And that's the key to racial reconciliation. You see, the gospel simultaneously celebrates <clears throat> ethnicity but at the same time, it relativizes it. This is very important. You see, when Christ becomes your primary identity, when he becomes your most foundational identity, then your sense of kinship and brotherhood that we all need does not come from your ethnicity or from your skin color or from your politics. It comes from unity in Christ. This is what Paul means when he says he created one new man in place of the two. Paul was talking about Jews and Gentiles. In the ancient world, they hated each other, but now in Christ, there is peace. Not an externally imposed peace, which is what the world knows, but a true peace that goes deep into the heart that comes from Christ. Let me add this final coda, and then we're done. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, the Moabites, Israel is told that the Moabites are to be treated with respect, but kept at arm's length. Several centuries later, a Moabite widow named Ruth, who is a worshiper of the God of Israel, she journeys to the land of Israel and she's gleaning in the fields, which remember is a provision specifically to provide for foreigners. She happens to glean in the field of Boaz, who is this righteous Israelite man. They get married. They have a child. That child becomes the grandfather of King David. And then through King David, Jesus of Nazareth. It amazes me that God so loved the nations. He has so set his heart on Gentiles like you and me. I don't think anyone in this church has Jewish blood in them. All of us are Gentiles. And he so loved us that when the Son of God took on flesh, he wove into his lineage his family heritage, this Moabite woman, 
so that forever part of his ethnic makeup is Moabite blood because he loves the nations. He wants all peoples to come to repentance and a saving knowledge of him. Let's pray. Lord, when we look out into the world, we see neighbor set against neighbor. We see division, anger, hatred, violence. And we confess that we are not just passive observers. We are active participants. We judge. We exclude. We speak hateful words. We're filled with suspicion. We recognize that by human strength, we cannot solve these problems. And so we ask for the peace of Christ. We ask for the healing of wounds, for true reconciliation, for the message of the gospel, which is the only hope for this world, to be preached to the nations and to be received. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.